0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Some of us in the community have the occasional opportunity to do executive education and get the chance to influence and shape the thinking of senior decision makers, but it is rare to have almost two decades of experience doing just that. And so today I'm inviting two of our previous guests back to FuturePod to have a conversation about what they learned about themselves, their participants, and the idea of executive education itself. Robert Burke, who we met in podcast 128, was the program director of the course in question from 2002 to its pandemic last running in 2020. His collaborator in that program was Sahail Inatula, who we last spoke to in podcast 124. I know both of them personally as both master practitioners and educators, and so I was not going to miss the opportunity for the chance to sit at their feet and learn from them once again. Welcome back to FuturePod, Robert and Sahail. Thank you,
1: Peter.
2: Thanks, Peter.
0: So, can I start you off with this question? How was the experience of working together for 20 years and trying to open up the heads and the hearts of senior executives to futures thinking?
1: Do you want to start with that, Sahail? Uh, Well, for me, it was a a wonderful opportunity primarily because of Sahel. I learned so much from Sahel that we, and was able to pass that on to the people in the program. but it was very much an eye-opener for me as it was for the participants. Uh, it was really a unique opportunity to do something different in the business school environment. Up until then they wouldn't have thought of using future thinking. In their programs, uh, they would always stick to the tried and true various forms of leadership and strategic planning. So the futures work we did really turned that on its head. But as I say, I was very grateful for the opportunity of working with Sahel, because I learned so much from that as well.
2: This is the critical part here. So if we look at how Rob framed it. So many futures projects, here's how the world is changing. External world is changing, please act. And I think Rob's contribution is threefold. First, he said, well, before you act, frame it as a learning journey. So it was a four-day, five-day program, but the first 90 minutes, almost two, two, three hours, Rob would go through the learning journey. What's zero-loop journey, where you don't learn? Single-loop, where you quickly act, but perhaps too soon. And what's this learning-to-learn and finally narrative or transformative learning? So that set up the process. So during the four days, when they would go back to business as usual, they would go back to their traumas, they would go back to their importance as CEOs or CFOs, Rob would step in, wait a second, we're not here to give you the future, we're here to transform your learning journey. I just remember one senior HR director, and she was there, and then after basically 30 minutes, she said, well... Can we just cut to the chase? I would actually prefer to fly (laughs) out this afternoon and not spend four or five days Mm -hmm. with you folks. And then she went on to say why she needed the answer straight away. And I was flummoxed. I said, what do I tell this person? I don't have the answer. And Rob, as the wise sage as he is, steps in and says, I have the answer. And the director looks and everyone looks in the room and stops. Rob will tell us the answer. What is he going to say? And he says, The problem is you. And the director just goes into panic. She goes, what do you mean? She goes, you want an answer where actually you've asked the wrong question. And so then he would take the learning journey as a step to leadership. So that was the, the second Rob's contribution to future studies. As the external world changes, first, set it up as a learning journey. Second, it's about who you are. And the who you are, you're just here for a quick McDonald's meal. How is that going to help you shape your organization and yourself with so much ambiguity and uncertainty? And this organization is a global top 100, and they had already failed going to market. They had so many failures. So this changed the entire conversation. She stayed the entire five days and then set up workshops throughout her organization. So it was a major mm-hmm. event where, you know, Rob stature as a CEO himself could get traditional business leaders to take the future seriously. So that's kind of episode one. Episode two, if I can just continue a bit more, was there was another, I would say, Bolsheviki, very irritable, for me, irritable person, right? So it's a four or five-day program, and this guy is a total pain for me, and he's a CFO. And he keeps on questioning us, challenging our methods, and goes on and on. And finally, on the third day, Rob just stops him and says, So what's your decision gonna be made? And the guy says, what do you mean? He said, what's your decision? He goes, what do you mean? He said, you're basically doing everything you can to be good as a CFO, to do risk assessment. We have spent three days with you about how you can transform your organization, become the CEO, become the chair of the board to look at emerging issues analysis, find opportunities, to use scenarios to understand uh, uncertainty, to go towards vision. Every step of the way, when you've had a chance to become a leader, you've balked and gone backwards. So finally, what's your decision? Do you just want to optimize yourself as a CFO or do you want to actually honor the only and real reason you came to this futures course to become a leadership with a new model of the future? And that look I remember in his face. So that's those two are... I mean, they're, they're pretty powerful memories in, in my mind. And of course, the subtext was how joyful it was to work with Rob, because every step of the way, I found myself learning new things, especially in these moments of confrontation. Because I'm a conflict avoider, and I think Rob to some extent is, but he would at that moment ask the right question, challenge them to take the leadership jump.
1: Well, thank you, Sahal. Equally, what I was impressed with what Sahal did was he always remained calm. He never actually got anyone offside personally. If they'd ask a question, he would honour it. But often he would go away and meditate, think about it, and the next day he'd come up with this wonderful assessment of what had happened the day before, which was pretty, which was pretty unusual. I think another thing that we tried to do was um, try to, very much to get people to apply it to their current workplace. There's lots of case studies that were involved. We, all, we were also interested in methodology, but we were particularly interested in how they would take it back to the workplace. So when they introduced themselves, we didn't ask them to say what their expectations were, because that's sort of saying, well, you know what to expect and we'll go back into the past. We asked them specifically what their intentions were. What were they here for? What do they want to do? How was it going to change? And I think that was very powerful. Yeah, this is the ep- A How was not only a wonderful academic, if you like, a great scholar, but he was a he is a superb communicator. He was able to bridge all the gaps between the differences and yet a lot of coherence. So it was just a joy to work with you.
2: This is the issue within if it's at the co level, high level. In terms of we wanted to make sure they had rigor and relevance. So I see Mm -hmm. now in 2022, everyone's doing foresight and futures. Some of it good and some of it actually quite junk. So we spent the first three days really focused on the rigor, going what's emerging issue analysis, what scenarios, what's CLA. But the real powerful part was at the end on day three, said, okay, now we're finished. Spend the next day taking these core ideas, apply them to your business. So these would be in the last 20 years, I would say almost every large business, a CEO or CFO, a head of strategy has applied it, whether it's in the energy field, in the insurance field, in the road building field, they've gone back and said, okay, let's now apply to my own business. So we would set up this kind of uh, safe space where they would say, okay, I'm presenting to the board, you're all board members. Or we would say, you're the CEO, you're presenting to us as customers or as employees. So the critical learning part is they would have to game a situation, and this became what we called our Monday morning question. So we had rigor, relevance, and the Monday morning questions. they were present to all of us, not just what they learned, but how they intend to use this in their organization. Should the energy sector stay coal, fossil, fuel-based, or everything they learned was a transition to renewable? How do I make the pitch? To the CEO and the board that the transition to renewables is not something that the crazy futurist Rob said. I remember in 2003, yeah. the first course, Rob went on and on about sustainability, green business, climate change. And really the look on most people in the room was this person slightly loony. Because if you were single bottom line, we're here to make money, you're here to Present risk. You're not presenting a risk, you're presenting something that none of us really buy because we have hegemon in the energy area. It's not going to change. And of course, by 2022, Australia has the highest uptake of solar energy per household in the world. So this was a transition I remember Rob started talking about. And the critical part is one, some people present do this you know, with citizens. But this was really the top of the top in this country, being exposed to the emerging issues and the very much the leadership challenge. If this is the case, we're in a transition to renewables, what is you as head of strategy? And I won't name the companies, but any Australian energy company, they've all been through it. What if you as head of strategy going to make the decision, what will you do? And they would then do with Celia. I remember one group, they kept on saying, our current metaphor is keep the lights on. And so Rob and I worked with them to say, okay, well, what's your new metaphor as the market is disrupted, as you get the new system? And they said, uh aha, we're the connectors because the energy markets won't be able to sustain the transition from coal to renewable. They'll be actually uh, erratic. So they have to connect the new integrated ecology system. So this became, the critical part was Rob, challenging about their leadership style, us giving them the emerging issues, and three, then presenting them to us. So, Rob, my question to you is, when you first started doing this, were you nervous they'd think you were off the wall, or you seemed to be confident, here's how the world is changing?
1: Uh, Yes, I was confident that we could make a difference. Basically, from the work I did with you before I joined the business school, but also as a CEO when I um, was first introduced to Futures Thinking and I was able to apply it to my own organisation and it made a huge difference. I, I think the what we were able to do with the cohorts we had, and just to reiterate, was to get them to think that they're back in their organisation and they're using these tools. So by getting them to use the tools in the programme, we were hoping that would Allow them to continue using when they got back to their fantasy land or their workplace. I say fantasy land because strategy normally was done with visioning up front. It was normally done with, well, this is what we'd like to get financially, etc., etc. It didn't really challenge what was going on. So when we started to apply the six pillars of future seeking, so six pillars, the first four were the rigor and the last two were the relevance. So you can see that it was the thinking you needed to do before you actually do did strategy. And I think this made a difference for them. They actually had a structure that they could work through where in their head they thought futures might be complicated or difficult or hairy-fairy or whatever. Here they had a structure that they could apply time after time after time. And I think that was why we saw some of the organisations who took it up seriously... Make a huge difference. remember when we had the um, CEO of Telecom Indonesia come on the program we're talking about the fifth largest company in the world. Uh, and to see them started thinking about future uh, in, as a result of the um, tools was really a wonderful experience.
2: The last part was the personal leadership journey. So remember yes. one example you used to use in a hospital, where the head of hospital, when you asked him, okay, here's how the future is changing towards alternative health, complementary health, digital. But then you asked him, where are you in this journey? And I remember your story, which hit me quite profoundly, was he would say, my mind is like a car. My personal metaphor, I'm in a car, and the tachometer is in the red, t- uh, tachometer. It's in the red, and so now that results is I'm going to have a bad health outcome. So it had him not just confront yeah. the role of the hospital in creating health futures, but in his own personal journey. So I think this was always a very part of, the last day of our course, we would take through them through the inner CLA, the CLA of the self, find out what's their metaphor and how do they transform. So I think many people yeah. saw that as the kind of, the cherry on top of the cake. They got futures, yeah. they got strategy, and they figured out their life story. Because ultimately, I think Rob, you always argued, organizations are just individuals, they're persons. I mean, it's the persons in the organization that make the difference, not just the rules that they follow.
1: Yes, that's right. The organization was an an abstraction, so to speak. If you wanted to change the organization, you change the conversation. But as Sahal was saying, we really wanted them to navigate the natural anxiety that would occur when you start to challenge yourself, challenge your ideas, challenge your whole past because we need to understand that a lot of these people are in the positions that they had, which took, took them their whole life to get there. So in order to get them to think differently or to change, often challenge them, sometimes challenge them too much. But when we had the rigor part of, of the six pillars of future thinking, that was a way of navigating safely the anxiety. So by the time they came to the relevance, they could really see an opportunity to see if we can really make a difference, to apply it. Their challenge going back to the workplace was whether they could convince people who hadn't been on the program to give it a go, how they could turn from being an executive to, a, if you like, a learning executive, how they could teach the people back at the workplace to keep this thing alive. And some did better than others, of course, but that became their role, and we did see people who would send people on the program from the same organization time after time, which is always a, a wonderful thing to see.
2: I remember this one group, 2008, they were in our course, and they were a large health insurance company. And their model in 2008 yeah. was insuring against illness. And then as we did the emerging issues, we moved to this 4P model of personalization, prevention, uh, prediction, participatory health. And we said, well, this could be the new model. So they changed their framework from ensuring against illness to creating the healthier you. So this was, it was in Rob, your language, many CEOs come in, they're straddled by the past. So I think what I got from Rob's discussion, they would say they want a technical solution. And Rob would always push. Mm-hmm. The technical solution, of course, will be easy because it fits into your current business model. But why are you spending four or five days with us? You can go to a normal strat planning course. You're here to learn about disruption and transformation. So Rob would push, go for the technical solution to the adaptive solution. In this case, their adaptive solution was let's use the discoveries in genomics and personalization, and their new metaphor became create the healthier you. And you can already figure out who your organization is. Now, with the part we didn't know then, and this is the fun part about futures, because we can see these inside solutions coming up, but we never know where it's going to lead. Of course, by 2022, not just did they create the health or you, they now had 12, 14 years of health data. They could actually become a data mining company if they decided to. So, this was yeah. the innovation, the adaption leads to more innovation, where the technical solution makes you look good, if I understand correctly, Rob, to the board, and they pat you on the back, but nothing really changes. These four or five days, it was so much fun working with Rob. It was easy, gentle, but these were intense situations. I have to say, I was always exhausted after them because it was so much dealing with these people. Half of them were resistors, trying to be nice, trying to make sure the Melbourne Business School still wants to continue. This is not like we're sitting there in a Noosa National Park looking at trees and at the beach. This is confrontation four or five days in a row. And I think the key points Mm -hmm. were always, do you want a technical solution that gets you win tomorrow? Or do you want an adaptive solution where you change and your organization is best fit for the next 10, 20 years.
1: Exactly. Mind you, the business school itself was, we had a challenge up uh, early on to get them to understand the value of future thinking. Yeah. Academics are very difficult to change. They've spent their whole life being who they are. So once they're challenged, they can be quite defensive. So we had to um, overcome those problems. Fortunately, we had a very good deputy dean at the time, Dr. Karen Morley, who did see what we had to offer was something unique, something different, and helped champion us. So we did need our friends from internal as well as external yeah. to, to able to get the program to run in the first place. But once yeah. it got up and running, it became contagious. You know, not only did uh, people want future thinking for the, the program itself, but they wanted it in their leadership programs, they wanted it in their strategy programs. So it, it, it did become a real thing. So, so Rob, sure.
2: how many how people do you think you presented to in the last 20 years, not just in the course, but afterwards, yeah. <laughs> all your leadership <laughs> I, futures?
1: Peter asked me to look at that and uh, it certainly added up, you know, so I reckon it was somewhere between 1,700 1, 700 and
0: 2,000. senior executives over the yeah. last 20 you years. you look at
1: some of the, you know, yeah. the futures work we did at BHP, you know, most of the energy companies with AXA overseas, Cedar, all the major leadership programs, it became part of it. So I was quite stunned when I did the figures. Themselves. I mean, you and I, Sahal, must have done... Th- almost four hundred. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. I'm wondering if
0: there's something about having the two of you in the room and the personas that you represented or could have represented the participants. And and Rob, I'm going to say yes, he is both the credible CEO, the friendly, but also quite unforgiving present of this is the world you are in. I know I've been there, so. And Rob has said in his own podcast that anxiety is part of the energy and fuel for change. And then there is the Sahail, the, the integrated, the settled, the calm, the swan, so to speak. And I'm wondering whether the two of you as a double act kind of represented a kind of dilemma but also the reality both internal and external for the people in the room and to some extent... A combination of you, a synthesis of you was their future if they were going to actually manage the process.
2: No, I think you hit it. The metaphor would be with this one teacher, you can escape. With both of us, there was no place to escape to. They couldn't, if it was just me, they would have said, yeah, interesting futures, consultant, professor type. He's never actually been a CEO. Fair enough. And then with Rob, they would have come, well, he's great at this, but he's not. they would have found something. But with two of us yeah. there, they're kind of handcuffed to the emerging future. And either they join or, you know, they're in trouble. So I think you really hit it. That, that dance worked. Rob? Yes.
1: I, I think so too, Sarah. I also think that we were both very committed to future thinking. I mean, we believed it deeply. And we wanted to show that. So there's a great deal of trust between us. But because there was that difference in our approaches, I mean personal approaches, not our approach to the future thing, we were able to cover the pre-futures, if you like, and the post-futures as well. And I think together it really worked. And, uh, on, on your own, it's more difficult. I've, I've done it on my own, but to have someone particularly of... Sahal's reputation, Sahal's scholarship in the area, the proof that he had given with his articles and books, et cetera, just made that much difference. And it worked. I mean, that was the main thing that we wanted to show them is, if they could apply the rigor, the relevance would follow and it would work.
2: I think with co-teaching, in reality, four or five days, in the beginning, then one of the deans said, look, this is good, but you'll get more people with four days. And we were like resistant, but that person was was truthful. It was true. But in a four day process, it can get tiring. So I found I could take off Saturday after you know, say Tuesday afternoon, or not take off. But I don't, I don't have to be mindful all the time. Someone asked something I don't really understand. I could go walk around, you know, it was in Carlton or Mount Eliza, get some ice cream, see the ocean, come back. Aha, here's the response. So I think in terms of other people doing futures, team teaching with someone you trust who's similar theoretically but has a different life experience makes it far richer.
1: I I certainly agree with that. Um, The most important aspects of what we uh, tried to achieve though was to get people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We were representing images of the future that were quite new to a lot of the people on the program. And then we asked them, well, if these images came true, what would you do? And this is where I found that Sahar's integral scenario uh, model where you integrated the design with the preferred was so powerful. And I think the participants did as well. They could see that they disowned something and it was relevant and it was real for them. But if they integrated that into their preferred and thought about, well, if this did happen, what, what am I going to do? To me, that was a real eye-opener for most of them. It certainly was for me. So we started with the program, but the program actually evolved. It evolved in little ways but made big differences. So by the time 2020 occurred, there was a difference than when, when it was in 2002 and 2003, But they they were sort of differences that were built over time, partly from feedback from our participants and partly from our own uh, contribution to what we wanted to see happen. It, 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 It was fun days as well. It wasn't as though we were going to work. I felt elated when I was on the program. You know, you certainly were anxious, but you knew that you were there for a reason and you knew that you could make a difference. And you knew that if the people responded, they were going to get a lot
2: out of it. And and certainly, Peter, your Sarkar game that you invented was featured every year in the program. In terms of, if if you remember, I'm used to share it with us and then we started to do it. And the amount of insights that would come afterwards, they would reflect, why did you act that way? In terms of the transition from here's how the world is changing to here's who I can be in that future, And what parts of my current organization do I have to change? I mean, I still remember one of them, everyone else was fighting, right? They were the warriors were attacking the capitalists. And (laughs) she was a worker. And she just found a couch, laid down, and got out her sparkling mineral water and drank it. (laughs) And and then everyone afterwards said, what did you just do? Why did you do that? She goes, well, I don't have to be part of your game. Yeah. And so this was her kind of, not just passive resistance. She was saying, here's another way to do this. And that became quite a highlight. Why did she do that? How come she didn't pick up the gun or try to buy someone off or work? She just said, no, I'm going to lay down, have my sparkling water, and reflect on the world I want. So those little instances (laughs) came from the game.
1: So how I mentioned just a little while ago, we went from five days to four days because marketing suggested that. And it worked. But the reason for that is that the participants on the program were increasingly senior executives, really senior executives, CEOs, CFOs, CIOs, etc. So time was precious for them. It was really gratifying to see that people of that calibre were prepared to make some changes themselves. So they came on the program, usually very positively, I thought. But that was the reason we reduced it from five days to four days was because the more and more senior executives wanted to come on the programs, but they were time poor.
2: Mm. I, I, for someone who's you know just starting out in futures foresight, the tension is always how far do you go? So I remember Rob saying, and many of the participants saying, we came for futures thinking. We came for future studies. That's what excited us. Novel thinking, outliers. But funding comes from strategy development. So the course is called Future Thinking Strategy Development. So strategy development was what they asked. The board would give the CEO money for that. The HR director would give heavy strategy money for that. So it's almost like how do we integrate the two? We want to be forward, yet we understand in today's world strategy is the ticket. So this, for the you know younger person starting out, it's really doing both in a way that brings in people, but you stay in your authenticity and say, look, here's where we need to go.
0: Exactly. Your, my question is there aren't enough Sahels to go around in the world and there certainly aren't enough Robs to go around in the world. I don't want to look for a recipe, but... If you were to distill this down, if others get an opportunity to deliver significant change and framework processes and transformation processes for senior decision makers, what are the kind of you know jewels that have to be present, you think, based on your 20 years of experience? Hmm.
2: One, there's a process issue. So before they start, they should do a CLA of the self or anything that gets them towards what's my metaphor in terms of doing futures. Is it a journey to the lighthouse or is it they're lost in a desert and have to find the oasis? Whatever there is, first start with the story, find the story that's going to work for them. So that's the thing that's outside the recipe. Do the inner work first. Here's who I am in a teaching, learning, futures journey that becomes critical because whatever else happens, that person stays in their story. And it's authentic. So it doesn't matter what the audience says because that's who you are. In terms of the technique, clearly what we're suggesting here, if you can team teach it, fantastic. Make sure you have enough theory, rigor, but make sure it's relevant to to where there are. Make sure as well that it's fun. So, we have the CLA game, the Sarkar game, Pola game, all the things. Actually, Peter, you've invented two of them. So, we make sure it's fun. And then the thing that's really whatever you do, it has to be action learning. So, the Monday morning question is met head front. It can't be something you talk about on day four or if you're doing a one day at 4 p.m. No, it's up front. We understand you need to make this real Monday. Let's start doing that now. So, you're actually practicing this? And Rob would always say, as you think about the Monday morning question, anxiety will emerge. So this is the mindful part. I will feel anxious because I'm afraid it won't work Monday. I feel anxious the board will throw me out. And you address that straight up, learn the tools and methods, figure out your inner story. So when you present, whatever it is, you're okay with it.
1: I think there's also the question of memory. At the business school, when the pandemic hit, just about every program in executive education was cancelled. And as a result of that, a lot of people were no longer uh, working for the school as a full time employee or as a contractor or whatever. So a lot of memory was lost. I know at the school now there's probably only one person who remembers the program that Sahal and I ran. And uh, she's very good, but she's not really on the high echelon. The rest, I think, have basically disappeared as a result of the pandemic. So one thing that I think we probably lacked in some way was to enhance that memory for periods like the pandemic. Perhaps there was something we could have done internally that could have uh, improved that situation. Having said that, though, the school was always very supportive. I became the first futurist in residence, if you like, uh, at the school. And we were asked to give speeches and part of our program. And I think if you lose a lot of champions, you, you lose a lot of memory, you somehow got to think about, well, how can we kickstart that again, but not at the beginning, but more or less at the end. So I think your question about involving other people Early on in the process, is a really good one, Peter. And um, perhaps we could have been better at that. In defence of what we did, we weren't against it. We certainly, we certainly tried it. Anyone, you know, on the leadership programs, we did the same sort of program so people could see what we were doing. So no, I, partly I, encouraging them to stick around, but also getting them to want to stick around. It was often a challenge their way of thinking to their way of teaching. So we had it both ways. We had to convince the school that there might have been other ways of learning, and we had to convince the participants that there might be other ways of doing strategy.
2: I think that's a fair assessment. Changed. Our weakness mm-hmm. was me and you aren't institution builders. Mm. No, that's right. Yeah. So if we had a third person who actually held the space of Futures Courses, but I think we were—we wanted our freedom. We wanted to fly in and fly out. We wanted to have a great time. We weren't the type that's that right. would spend six months filling out forms to make sure the course continues. Right? That's right. But I think that's a fair assessment. That would be our weakness. And other people want to make sure they're not concerned about the content or quality or who shows up as long as something called the course or the program continues. But that was never us. Okay. No. But I think that's, that's, that's a fair thing if we had that. Let's let's see how it works out. It's, uh, let's see if they understood here was the impact. And if they don't, it's okay, because all the people who graduated, I still get emails. They still want to keep on doing futures. Exactly. So exactly. It's,
1: I think the people who did it
2: yeah.
1: are, are sold on it. We, we did keep the school involved. I'm really saying that it takes effort to want to change. And business schools, I think, have to put extra effort in if they want to be relevant for the future. They have to change as well. And I think we played a major role in getting our business school to change. But there were still some people that uh, probably were still too anxious to really look at it in a deep way. But again, that's me overthinking it, I think. Uh, I was surprised how the pandemic could make such a
2: difference. This is the meta question for the nature of universities. Yeah. They have hegemony over knowledge, so they think the world changes and they're still wondering, hey, what just happened? Hmm. And I think this is systemic throughout the world, this moving towards I can learn anywhere from anyone, any time, any place. This kind of major break we've had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, Peter, you would have experienced similar things at Swinburne. Yeah, I mean,
0: there's a, we personify change and transformation and the notion that you can um, institutionalise transformation. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's exactly and it. And
0: uncertainty
2: yeah. is
0: just that. It's almost an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, however, the data says you kept this course going for 20 years in any institution, let alone a university institution. You personally taught the best part of three to 400 people, but also spun off to the best of estimation 2,000 mm. senior decision makers. And I'll point out too, for me, one of the things you did that was brilliant was you put individual transformation at the core of organisational transformation. Yes. and that was on the front foot and people people came there wanting to be transformed but using almost the organisation as a kind of reason for, for them to get into the room and justify what they were doing. And so, yeah, I think the knock-on effect of what you guys achieve for 20 years will, will play out well, well, well beyond uh, the effect of just one job in one person. So, yeah, fantastic.
1: I mean, one of the big differences we did, we, ours is about learning from the future as well as the past. But the traditional um, teaching method is obviously learning from the past.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there, there was that big difference there.
2: And then going back to what you said, Peter, what's the recipe? What I have found any time I've not spent time, you know, say I only have a day or even two hours or an hour. I still make sure the first few slides are always about the learning journey. Yeah. So then at yeah. the end of the hour or the day, they can't say, you didn't tell me the answer. I say, wait a second. We were very clear in the beginning. This is your learning journey, learning to learn. This is about you confronting what you don't know that you're unwilling to talk about. And so <laughs> once it's framed that way, the traditional critique of forecasting or foresight drops away because now we're co-designing as Rob said it can't be here's my expectation no we're creating a safe space for creation you're co-creating if that's the goal then every workshop speech etc project starts with this is a learning journey who are we in this learning journey towards the new future learning from our desired future
1: yes yes I guess overall, future thinking is now well-recognised and well-used throughout the world. And I like to think we played a little part in that. Um, But it's uh, also about organisations themselves wanting to survive. It was a survival thing as well. And that we were um, trying to convince organisations that part of their survival trick was concept of creative destruction. what do they need to blow up in order to invent the new? And of course that was pretty anxiety provoking for a lot of people <laughs> yeah. how, how could they uh, destroy what they've got so that something different something more powerful emerges? I think we were able to differentiate that um, maintaining the rage the way it was was important but for senior leaders etc, it was less important than trying to find out how to do it better, how to take these trends and differences, and at least prototype them to see if they if they, they can have a better organisation in the end, more capable of navigating change, but also creating that change, being the provocateur, being the change agent. So we wanted them to think that, and for big, powerful companies, that was difficult. For them, but uh, those that picked it up ran with it, which was always good to see. Electric cars is one of the very interesting ones when we see that how the automotive industry has changed quite completely.
2: I was just doing a project with Mitsubishi Motors, Robin. I was telling you about what things you were doing 20 years ago.
1: All right.
2: The entire conversation with the executives was about uh, electric cars, driverless cars, green cities, sustainability. They said, we need to be more like Greta and Elon. And I said, yeah, that's that's the stuff Rob Burke, when he was a CEO of car companies, was talking about 20 years ago. And then, of course, yeah. the discussions were all about optimizing fuel mileage. And, of course, now over 20, it's really shifted. So that's the fun part of doing this over time. You, you can see. Yeah the future start to emerge and then our role is always, okay, well let's now create the next horizon.
0: Yes. Last long enough to be able to use the past in the future. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Thanks so much everyone. Okay. Brilliant. Thank Um, you. On behalf of the community, thank you both for your 20 years of work. And uh, yeah. So thank you very much for spending some time.
2: Thanks, Rob. Thank thanks, you, Peter. Peter. This was lots of fun. I appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah, you
1: too. Cheers, then.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.